Welcome to Salam Pages, where we read the opening pages of books written by Muslim authors. Narrated by Samia. This is A Temporary Gift, Reflections on Love, Loss, and Healing, written by Asma Hussain. Introduction My Amr It was in his heart that my heart found a home after much wandering and loneliness. It was his heart that said to mine, You will never be frightened or sad while you're with me. His heart spoke the truth because our life together was full of unmitigated feelings of safety and joy. Even in the difficult times that every marriage stumbles upon, our hearts were two halves of one. We balanced each other so perfectly that at first it was hard to believe. He was calm when I was angry. I was calm when he was angry. He lifted my sadness, and I lifted his. One meaningful embrace from him could melt away all my worries. One moment of looking into his eyes, our hands clasped, would calm my nerves and make me believe to my very core that everything would be fine. My Amr He was loved and respected by all who knew him. He could never be in anyone's company without bringing a smile to that person's face. He inspired ease in hearts. He raised people's spirits and hopes. He was unlike anyone I had ever met. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala places love in your heart for your spouse, the kind of love so deep that it is unaffected by day-to-day stresses, the kind of love that pushes you to be a better, kinder person, the kind of love that makes it seem like you are one soul living in two bodies, it is nothing short of a sign, a miracle, an ayah. In the short period of time between marrying Amr and losing him, in one quick moment of violence, I was blessed with his company and an uncomplicated love that not everyone has a privilege of experiencing. Our love was indeed an ayah. And of his signs is that he created for you from yourselves mates, that you may find tranquility in them. And he placed between you affection and mercy. Indeed, in that are signs for a people who give thought. Arum, chapter 30, Ayah 21. An ayah, or sign, is given to people by Allah in order to direct them, to guide them, and to lead them back to him. In both life and death, Amr's example always led me back to Allah. Some people think love is random. Some think it's a simple human instinct to procreate, and some even try to boil it down to the science of chemicals and pheromones. True love, though, whose source is al-wadud, the most loving, cannot be touched or seen or measured. How can it be when it is a sign and miracle of Allah? Allah placed that kind of love between our hearts. Finding Amr 
Before Amr, my life was good. I was blessed with a supportive family and wonderful friends. I had just graduated with a Master of Social Work. To the outside world, everything seemed to be going right for me. However, my heart felt an emptiness that I didn't understand how to fill. I thought that if I took up a few hobbies and spent time with my friends and family, that void would disappear. Even then, though, my heart was constantly tugging at me, as if to say, You have too much love to give. It needs somewhere to go. It was true. I did have an overwhelming amount of love in my heart. It was also true that there was nowhere for it to go. Numerous times at the behest of family and friends, I met potential spouses. Each time I met someone new, though, there was always something about him that didn't sit well with me. The painfully honest truth was that the more I learned about the characteristics of most men, the more I became disillusioned with the idea of marriage. I had a conversation with a friend about a month before I met Amr. I told her, I have reconciled myself to the fact that I may never marry. I have considered a number of men and have been disappointed with them all. Perhaps I'm meant to be alone, and that's okay. I will live my life as best as I can. I will contribute to my community in the best way that I know how, and this will fulfill me. This will be enough for me. I was exhausted from being disappointed so often. I decided I would just stop trying. My heart needed a break. A few short weeks later, I met Amr. Out of frustration, I had resigned myself to a life of being alone. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had something different in mind. He had a gift waiting for me. One of Allah's name is Al-Wahhab, which means the bestower of gifts. He gives us gifts for different reasons. He may give us a gift solely out of love for his slave. He may see that his slave is distant from him, so he gives her a beautiful gift to bring her back to thanking him. For the life of me, I didn't understand why I deserved to be married to someone who was so perfect for me. Just weeks before I'd met Amr, I had totally given up on marriage and no longer wanted to pursue anything related to it. Al-Wahhab was adamant about bringing him into my life, however, because he knew Amr was a gift that would cause me to be grateful. Throughout this period of time, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was showing me that it is not up to me to close a door when he wills it to be open. A few years later, I would learn that it is not up to me to keep a door open that he wishes to be closed. I am grateful to Amr, in the present tense. I will not write that I was grateful for him because that would be the truth. I am grateful for him even now that he is not by my side. I am grateful for him because he changed me, he taught me, and he grew with me. He is still a part of my life even though we can no longer speak to or see one another. He is ever-present in my heart and in my prayers. Yes, I am grateful for Amr.
My first meeting with Amr was completely unplanned. I traveled to Egypt with my mother for a short three-week visit in 2010, and while we were there, my uncle, who I suspect knew that I was not interested in meeting anyone, craftily brought up the topic of marriage. He told me a few things about Amr. He was 23 years old, a pharmacist, religious, and a long-time neighbor of my uncle. I felt that familiar wall go up inside my brain. I knew of men his age. I was nearly two years older than him. And they all seemed to be unsuitable matches for me. Although I desperately wanted to decline meeting him, I was too embarrassed to say no to my matchmaker uncle. To comfort myself, I thought that my meeting with Amr would become just another interesting event to add to my arsenal of bad proposal experiences. When I entered my uncle's home to meet Amr, I was greeted by the familiar sunken couches worn down by generations of my rowdy cousins, the aroma of perpetual cooking, and the whirring of fans attempting to soften the Egyptian summer heat. Amr hadn't arrived yet, but I saw his CV sitting on the table, and I took a look at it. What a nerd! I humorously chuckled to myself. He had graduated with a Bachelor of Pharmacy, literally at the top of his class. I had to admit that he looked pretty good on paper. He was clearly intelligent and goal-oriented. When he arrived, we sat nervously across from each other. I clutched my hands on my knees and felt beads of sweat forming on my forehead. My mouth felt dry, and I silently hoped I wouldn't be tongue-tied. My uncle talked for a while, trying to cut the tension in the room. Amr seemed to be just as nervous as I was, fiddling with his glasses and clasping and unclasping his hands repeatedly. It made it easier for me to talk to him, knowing I wasn't the only one who felt awkward during this first meeting. It was that day that Amr and I started talking about everything and nothing, and I let myself notice that he had a sweet and easy smile. His eyes were searching, trying to make sense of what he was hearing and seeing. They focused under raised eyebrows when I asked puzzling questions and became pleasingly narrow when he laughed at one of my numerous ludicrous comments. His gestures mimicked mine, a subconscious indication of interest. When I left our first meeting that night, I was in a perplexed state. I have never believed in love at first sight. I think it's a shallow concept concocted by the entertainment industry to make love stories seem more interesting. Still, something felt different this time. Whereas I often felt relieved to be done with meeting a potential spouse, Amir's company was pleasant, and I hoped that we would meet again. I was reserved in my comments and thoughts, fearing that unbridled optimism would get the better of me and I would eventually be disappointed again. I remember thinking, this person doesn't seem like anything I've ever met. And he wasn't. In my love story, I didn't love Amr at first sight. He didn't love me at first sight either. The next day, though, I received a call from my uncle telling me that Amr wanted to meet me again. When I hung up, I said to my mom, Well, of course he wants to meet me again. I'm awesome. She laughed and said, Don't be so full of yourself. I would later find out that my uncle, being the sly matchmaker that he is, called Amr and used a similar line, saying I wanted to meet him again. 
It's a good thing he used his mischievous tactics to get Amr and me in the same room together again. We were both too reserved to come out and say we wanted to meet each other a second time. Amer and I met again and talked for a long time. I was traveling back to Canada the next day, so it would be the last time I talked to him in person for a while. Over the next few months, Amar and I spoke regularly online, asking each other every possible question we could think of. We were attempting to understand and appreciate each other's personalities, goals, and dreams. It didn't take us long to discover that we were two halves of one. Neither of us said it outright, but we both knew. I remember my friend asking me after I had gotten engaged, When is the exact moment you knew he was the one for you? Although our affection came on gradually, I knew the answer to that question pretty well, and the answer is quite silly. Amr had a picture of himself and his brother on Facebook that made me smile in recognition the moment I saw it. In that picture, they looked so much alike that it was as though one were a reflection of the other. They were dressed the same. Smart black suits, fancy black shoes, blue dress shirts, and striped ties. They sat on their mom's couch, both making the same funny faces. When I saw that picture, I knew Amr was the one for me because I have the same twin picture with my sister. The two of us sitting on a bench, dressed exactly alike, our faces turned towards the camera wearing identical facial expressions. On the surface, this may seem like an odd aha moment to recognize that someone is meant for you. But in comparing those two pictures, I instantly recognize a similar quirkiness in our personalities. How strange it was to come upon that photo one day and think, Amr is the male version of me. I say it's strange because I was born and raised in Canada and he was born and raised in Egypt. I would have thought there would be a significant gap in culture and understanding, but there wasn't. When someone is meant to be yours for a time, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala causes your hearts to come together fully even if your mind initially sees barriers. What is meant to be, is. It's as simple as that. My dad took into consideration his brother's, my uncle's, recommendation of Amr, but that wasn't the end of it. He conducted a thorough background check, searching high and low for people who personally knew Amr and could offer insight into his personality, values, and level of piety. My siblings and I call my dad the strainer because of his uncanny skill in sifting through scores of losers to recognize men of quality for his daughters. Most men had personalities, beliefs, or traits that would never get past my dad. He would sort through them as though he had a sixth sense of who was suitable and who didn't measure up. Only a few were considered good enough. Amr was one of them. Once Amr and I were both comfortable enough with each other and knew that we wanted to move forward in a relationship, my father and I traveled back to Egypt together to meet Amr's family for the first time. His family was wonderful and hospitable. I still remember the elegant tray of baklava they brought when they first came to meet me and the numerous delicious and elaborate meals they painstakingly prepared whenever they hosted us. They were kind enough to overlook my nervousness and lack of both familiarity with Egyptian culture and fluency in Arabic. My dad and I were in Egypt for only six days, but Amar and I met and talked often. 
Amr wasn't able to take that week off work, so he had to work overnight shifts at the pharmacy in order to free up his days to sit and talk to me. After much discussion between the two of us and between my father and me, plus many istikharar prayers, Amr and I were engaged on October 12, 2010. It was a simple meeting at Amr's parents' home without a party or celebration. My father turned to Amr's parents and asked, Do you agree for your son to be engaged to my daughter? We agree, they said. He then turned to me and asked, Do you agree to be engaged to Amr? Yes, I nodded. He turned to Amr. Do you agree to be engaged to Asma? Amr nodded solemnly. Yes. My father nodded. And I agree. That was it. Simple, beautiful, real. I turned to look at Amr and he was beaming. I could see he was trying to hold it in. It wasn't working, though. His smile burst from his face and he was absolutely beaming. Mabruk, I said to him, grinning back. His mother caught me in a hug. My dad and I were scheduled to leave for Canada that same night. Before we left, Amr asked me if I had brought a ring with me on this trip. He wanted to borrow it because he was going to buy me a ring before I left. He was a hopeless romantic. I let him borrow my ring so he could run off quickly to buy me one in the right size. In his words, he didn't want me to leave Egypt empty-handed. When we had finished packing, Amr drove us to the station in Alexandria, where we would board a bus to the Cairo airport. My dad sat in the passenger seat, and I sat behind them. I looked at Amr in the rearview mirror and felt absolutely serene. There were no butterflies of nervousness or anxiety, just an inward prayer that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would guide us to grow into better people in one another's company. When we arrived at the station, Amr turned to me, all while my father was still sitting next to him, and presented me with a small red velvety box. Asma, will you marry me? He asked, grinning. I was glad it was nighttime so he couldn't see the red flush that spread across my face. I took the box from him and opened it. It was a simple gold ring he had picked out himself. It was beautiful. Yes, inshallah, I replied. I took the ring out of the box and put it on. I glanced at my father and glimpsed an embarrassed but entertained chuckle forming on his lips. We loaded our luggage onto the bus and said our goodbyes before the bus drove off. I spent most of the time on the bus replaying every moment and conversation we had had over the past six days. And of course, I stared at my ring. Back in Canada, I told only a few of my closest friends about the engagement. Amr and I hadn't made our news public yet. Amr absolutely loved to surprise people. So he announced our engagement on Facebook without telling his friends about me at all beforehand. We sat back and watched our profiles explode with comments from friends who were happy for us and friends who were happy but surprised there had been no earlier hints about our engagement. When we got engaged, Amir and I hadn't yet set the date for Anika. The way our family's schedules seemed to be going at the time, we assumed the nikah would take place the following summer. However, neither of us wanted to have that long of an engagement because we felt it could potentially lead us to overstep Islamic boundaries. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made it easy for us to manage our family schedules and we were able to get married in December, just two and a half months after we were engaged. 
When my family and I traveled to Egypt in December 2010 for the nikah, almost all our luggage got lost. I showed up in Egypt literally with just the clothes on my back. Alhamdulillah, I'd had enough sense to pack the dress I planned to wear for the nikah in my carry-on luggage. December 23, 2010 was the best day of my life. I knew getting married would be special, but I didn't like the idea of comparing it to every other day in my life as though nothing could ever match that happiness again. Until that day, I didn't understand why people said that the day you get married is the best day of your life. The morning of December 23rd was sunny, cool, and calm. I slept in, then took my time getting out of bed and eating breakfast. My then-fiancé came to pick something up from our place before the wedding, and I picked at him from the top floor of our apartment and smiled a delicious kind of secret smile. Slow conversations carried me to the afternoon when I ironed my dress carefully, ensuring all its folds were crisp and clean. The florist delivered my bouquet, and the cake arrived as I was getting ready. I put the dress on and looked in the mirror. As I stood looking at my reflection, I felt no nerves, no doubts, just an overwhelming sense of determination. I had found the one. I had taken the means I had been blessed with and was marrying him. It seemed to be the most logical and easy decision I had ever made. I pinned my hijab in place. I clanked my way to the car in my high heels, holding my dress aloft so it stayed pristine until the ceremony. We drove by the Mediterranean Sea on the way to the mosque and felt this cool winter breeze. I was chewing gum, smiling, and joking with my sisters as though I were out on a regular day, running an errand. We arrived on time and I scuttled into the mosque, making sure he didn't see me in my dress before the ceremony. I waited with my family in the women's prayer area, greeting guests and replying to the oceans of mabruks being whispered into my ears. After we finished the Isha prayer, I made my way up to the balcony of the mosque to have a clear view of the whole ceremony. I was the last to get up there and the women had crowded the viewing areas. With what seemed to be my sheer psychological strength, I willed them to part, and soon I stood looking into the crowd of men, trying to spot the friend who was about to become my husband. He signed and fingerprinted a marriage contract. The contract made its way upstairs so I could do the same. My writing was wobbly and lopsided, but my name was clear. I agree, said my instinct thumb. I looked over the balcony railing and watched as my father sat near Amr and said the words that officially gave me away to my husband. In a moment, I was wrapped in the arms of women I knew and loved, as well as women I had just met for the first time. They were ecstatic. There were many happy tears. I glanced down at the men's section and tried to scan the crowded room for Amr, but he was also lost in the arms of friends and relatives. I felt the same as I had before I was married, happy, calm, sure of myself. It seemed like nothing had changed. My husband escaped the grips of his enthusiastic friends and made his way up to the women's section to exchange rings with me. His face was bright and filled with an innocent bewilderment as he took my hand and kissed my forehead to the soundtrack of giggling women. My cheeks were flushed but it all seemed like the most natural sequence of events, as if I had somehow known beforehand that it was going to happen this way. Chocolates and drinks were passed around. I didn't get a chance to taste them. 
My husband saved a chocolate for me to eat later, but my brother got to it first. And that was okay. We linked arms and made our way out of the mosque to be greeted by a crowd of happy faces, confetti, and handheld fireworks. My husband's friends ambushed him, hoisted him up, and threw him into the air a few times. I looked on in amusement and kept stealing glances at this man who was now my closest partner in life. I smiled because I absolutely knew he was a right ally to make. After snapping some photos, Amr took me by the hand and led me from the festivities to his friend's car to drive us away. Between the smiles and careful, treasured first words, I quietly said, Alhamdulillah, I knew that I would never again be surprised by anything beautiful that Allah allowed me to have in my life. He was the only one capable of bringing two people from different parts of the globe together, people who didn't know about each other just a year before, people who weren't even interested in love anymore, people who had surrendered themselves to the harshness of disappointment. But Allah is Al-Fatah, the opener of doors, opportunities, and chances to regain piety, forgiveness, and love. Nothing more remains for me except to thank Him every day for making what seemed to be so hard at first so easy and wonderful, full of immense beauty and contentment. Now I understand why people say getting married is the best day of your life. It's true. Alhamdulillah. Losing Amr Marrying and living with Amr was like finally seeing the sun rise over the landscape of my heart after a long, dark, cold night. Losing him was not peaceful like the setting sun, though. It was terrifying and painful. It was as though the radiant sun were being destroyed piece by piece in front of my eyes. We had a happy life together, and the nine-month-old daughter when Amr was taken. Our time together was so short as though it were just a passing dream. After we married, I moved to Egypt, where we lived for a little over a year. It was in that year that I first garnered the courage to venture out alone into Egypt's haphazard chaos. I learned how to take creaky macrobuses on my own and to maneuver so I could not sit next to the strange men on my travels. It was in that year that I first learned how to cook. I messed up quite a bit when Amr was my unfortunate taste test subject, but he never once complained. It was in that year that I learned the positive and negative idiosyncrasies of Egyptian culture. It was also in that year that I witnessed firsthand Amr's remarkable character. He prayed every prayer in the mosque. He fasted every Monday and Thursday, as well as the three middle days of each lunar calendar month. He was incredibly kind and generous. He insisted that everything that was his was now mine, too. Prior to moving to Egypt, I had applied to sponsor Amr to come to Canada as a permanent resident. When we finally got the news that he had been approved, we were excited to start a new chapter in our lives together. Amr had shown me all the places he loved in Egypt. Now it was my turn to show him all the places I loved when I was growing up in Toronto. Moving to a new country was hard for Amr. He spoke English fluently, but Canadian culture was so different from what he was accustomed to. Still, he got up every morning and did whatever was in his power to provide for his family and open up new opportunities for us. By the time we arrived in Canada, I was already four months pregnant. 
Amar was working part-time and applying for master's degree programs at different universities. Much of his time was devoted to fleshing out his different study and work options and doing some research work with a professor at a nearby university. A few months later, we had our baby. She was born on November 10, 2012, in the same Toronto hospital where I had been born 26 years earlier. After nine months of the two of us thinking our baby was a boy, she was born, and the doctor plainly pronounced, It's a girl. They handed her to me. After all the hours of labor, there she was, a six-pound, five-ounce piece of perfection. We called her Ruqayya. We dove headfirst into the exhaustion and sleepless nights of parenting. For the next few months, Ruqayya's feedings, diaper changes, teething, and doctor's visits were all that occupied me. Amr and I decided to travel to Egypt in June 2013 so his parents could meet the granddaughter for the first time. We booked our flights and were preoccupied with packing and arranging everything for our trip. The summer of 2013 was a tumultuous time to be in Egypt, to say the least. When we traveled to Egypt in early June, we were completely unaware of how serious and dangerous the situation on the ground would become. Large protests were taking place against the Muslim Brotherhood-led government. On July 3, 2013, a few weeks after we arrived in the country, we witnessed the removal of the first democratically elected president, Mohamed Morsi, in a coup d'etat led by the Egyptian military. The president and his aides were arrested, and soon, counter-protests calling for Morsi's reinstatement started cropping up, leading to mass encampment and sit-ins by his supporters. What emerged in the days and weeks that followed was a wave of rampant injustices committed by the military, leading up to what is described by Human Rights Watch as one of the world's largest killings of demonstrators in a single day in recent history, at Rabat Square in Cairo on August 14, 2013. In the two months that followed the coup, over 1,150 innocent men, women, and children were killed in cold blood the majority of them in Rabat Square. Needless to say, throughout the weeks following the coup, our worries increased. We had planned to fly back to Toronto on August 19, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had planned something else for our small family. On August 16, 2013, two days after the Rabat massacre in Cairo, Amr was at a large protest in Alexandria. He clearly understood the injustices of the military coup and his serious ramifications. He was devastated at the murder of hundreds of protesters just two days prior and had joined this local protest to stand up for the rights of his brothers and sisters who had been killed indiscriminately. Amr never shied away from speaking the truth. August 16th was no different. That afternoon, I called Amr to make sure he was okay and to ask when he would be home. He called my fears, told me he was on his way home, and assured me that everything was fine. He said there had been thousands of people at the protest, men, women, and children. I asked him to pick up diapers for Ruqayya on his way home. He laughed and said, Okay. I told him I loved him. That was our last conversation. About 20 minutes later, I received a call from Amr's number. When I answered, an unfamiliar voice was on the other end. 
I handed the phone to my mother-in-law because I didn't understand what the man on the phone was saying. He told her that Amr had been martyred and that passerbys at the protest had carried his body to a nearby mosque. He said someone from Amr's family should come take possession of his body. Our initial reaction was one of shock. We didn't know whether to believe the news or not. I felt a heavy knot tying itself in my stomach. Before any tears came, I eyed the washroom sink, thinking that I would throw up at any moment. Amr's parents were in hysterics. His father quickly ran out of the apartment to make his way to the mosque where Amr's body was supposed to be. We didn't tell anyone for an hour or so. We had to verify the news of Amr's murder before I could even tell my parents. It was a long, difficult hour. Soon we received a call from Amr's father. It really was Amr's body in the mosque's makeshift morgue. His soul was gone. Around 45 others were killed in the same place on that same day. The minutes, days, and weeks that followed were the most difficult, darkest moments of my life. I was caught between the immense pain of losing my partner and the urgency of trying to figure out how to safely leave the country with Rukaya. In the days after Amr's martyrdom, I kept looking at my beautiful, unaffected daughter and thinking, you are an orphan now. I kept looking at myself in the mirror and thinking, you are a widow now. When I tried to look into my future, I couldn't see a single thing. Everything I had planned for my life, I had planned with Amr. Suddenly, none of those plans were relevant anymore. One of the most frightening experiences is to look forward into your life and see nothing. No happiness, no hope, no potential. In that blindness, the only thing I could hear was my own heart, rattling towards what seemed like a future of hollow nothingness. I couldn't imagine ever recovering from that pain. I had to recover, though. I had to be happy again for my daughter's sake. I had to learn how to live in the presence of death without being paralyzed by it. And by the permission of Allah, I did learn to get up and walk forward again. This is my journey. A journey that has been filled with a kind of pain I never knew existed. But also a depth of serenity and gratitude that was new, deep, and beautiful. The journal entries on the following pages are short records I kept of the highs and lows I endured in the two years following Amr's departure from this world. Writing was a way for me to process my pain and attempt to emerge from it with a greater understanding of my faith and of myself. Some of these entries are reflections I shared on social media platforms because I felt the pressing need to tell my story to everyone who would listen. I needed the world to know about Amr. In this book are words that have given me comfort and have reminded me that beyond the pain and darkness of loss, there is still the potential of light in patience and constancy. O mankind, there has come to you instruction from your Lord and healing for what is in the breast and guidance and mercy for the believers. Eunice, chapter 10, verse 57. 
Do you want me to feature your book at the Salam Pages podcast? Then please write me at readmybook at sunnahliving.com. If you love my narration, then please rate and review this podcast on iTunes. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Salam Pages.